News, notes, and Zola, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 29th. It's show number 30 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great show for you. Of course, we'll talk with Todd Zola, our Talk with Todd commentator, about park factors, using WOBA for daily play, Bryce Harper versus Nelson Cruz in the power department, and more. We'll also have our regular contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, We'll have player news from the National League with Harold Nichols, looking at the St. Louis first base situation now that Matt Adams is going to the DL, and the Mets rotation with Dylan G coming back from the DL, plus more. And from the American League, it's Jock Thompson looking at closer situations all over the place in the AL West, as well as more American League news. In our regular matchups analysis, Greg Fishwick looks at Kansas City right-hander Jordano Ventura visiting Cubs righty Jason Hamill, and San Diego right-hander Tyson Ross hosting the Pirates righty Charlie Morton. And in Master Notes, BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy talks about Lance Lynn and the nature of conflicting analysis. It's another terrific show. Thanks for joining us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? It's another Friday. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of our Friday News and Notes edition, as always, our League Watch News reports. Jock Thompson standing by on deck with the players from the American League and leading off our National League report and our old friend Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Thank you, Patrick. Good to be here. Last week when we spoke to you, you said you might be on your way to the Field of Dreams in Iowa. Did you get there? We got there. We got there. It was a neat uh, a neat trip, a neat experience, uh, especially if you're traveling through a neck part of the country with children, a good place to stop. You can uh, you can see the field that was on the uh, on, in the movie and get out and play ball and bat the ball around, throw the ball around, run the bases. It's, it was it, it was fun. Did they have uh, actors out there in the old timey uniforms? Not no not they don't do that on a daily basis. There are a few times during the year when they will do that, and of course at this time of the year the corn is not uh, is just coming up, so not a huge cornfield out there. But if you're thinking about later in the summer once the corn is up, that would even add to the experience, I would think. Yeah, having uh, like people crawling out from half-grown corn stalks wouldn't be quite the uh, impressive experience. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Over in. Uh, St. Louis, Nick, they got some really bad news. Matt Adams, their first baseman, is going to be missing a lot of time. Could be in the three- to four-month range. He tore his quadriceps muscle. That might require surgery, but either way, he's not going to be back for quite a while. What goes on in Houston with Matt Adams out of the picture? Well, St. Louis, with Matt Adams gone, it looks like uh, it looks like Mark Reynolds will get uh, the, the playing time in the short term, at least. Uh, uh, I would guess, given that, that St. Louis is contending and that um, the length of time Matt Adams is going to be out, that St. Louis may be on the trade market uh, looking to shore up the first base position. But right now it's going to be Mark Reynolds. Mark Reynolds is off to a decent start this year, hitting 253 instead of the 196 he batted a year ago. And uh, we know that Mark Reynolds has got power. He's produced uh, produced more than 20 home runs since uh, every season since 2008. So, uh, the power is there, the strikeouts are also there, and the low batting average uh, is, uh, of course, always an issue. 
Even though he's hitting 253, his expected batting average is just 213, which is more like what we're used to from Mark Reynolds. But definitely with the increase in playing time, BaseballHQ.com has pushed its projection to 326 uh, at-bats to come the balance of the year, 14 homers, around 40 runs and 40 RBIs, somewhere in that vicinity. Still not a real great value because of the batting average issue. Right, yeah, very definitely. And I, as I said, I would not be surprised if... Uh, uh, if St. Louis is out looking for a trade partner, uh, Ryan Howard, of course, has been on the market, uh, and, and that's certainly a possibility. The general manager also mentioned uh, Pete Cosma, Yadier Molina, and even Tony Cruz as possibilities to get some playing time at first base, although, boy, they'd really be dipping into the bottom of the barrel to go with Cosma or Cruz. Yeah, they would indeed. So I would guess that uh, I would guess at least Reynolds brings the power uh, that, that would allow him to bat in some runs and, and occasionally hit the, hit the long ball. Nick, at BaseballHQ.com, we have a feature, a regular column called Playing Time Tomorrow. And this is where the uh, BaseballHQ.com specialists who monitor the teams and the divisions look uh, ahead at what might be coming. And it's a really interesting way to get the uh, head start on thinking about making some free agent decisions and so forth. And this week, Greg Pyron uh, in Playing Time Tomorrow looked at the New York Mets. And particularly, Dylan G is going to be making his final rehab appearance and then coming back to the rotation. How does that shake out for what's going on with the Mets? Well, at this point, Dylan G will come back as part, probably part of a six-man rotation. There are a couple of young guys they want to keep innings down on, and so uh, they'll probably go with six men, uh, at least initially, as, as Dylan G returns. Um, but the, 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 the problem could come for John Neese in the rotation eventually. He's struggled a bit his last three outings. We don't know exactly what's going on with John Neese. He started out pretty well. But in his last, uh, in his last 16 innings, he's given up 16 earned runs. And so there, there's some problems going on right now with John Neese. And certainly if he keeps, uh, if he keeps that up, could be in trouble. And if you go back as far as April the 26th, uh, Neese has a one in five record since, uh, or has only won one game since that, in that period of time and, and five losses. So, uh, when he's been pitching. So, you know, one of those, uh, uh, things where G could eventually replace Neese in the rotation unless he turns things around. Nice has been on the DL a lot, five times, I think, in the last six seasons. I remember reading at BaseballHQ.com a while ago. And uh, his ERA has climbed up over four. His expected ERA is about two-tenths of a run higher still. And uh, really concerning to me, Nick, when I look at it, how about a 157 whip? And, you know, he's he's managing this poor performance despite league average hit rates, maybe a touch high, but his strand rate is really high, so you'd think that would help his ERA, and yet it's over four and climbing. Yeah, so, you know, there's something, maybe something kind of strange going on there. Certainly um, health issues, as you said, have been a problem with Nice, and, and there, may, there may be something that we don't know about yet that's causing the, the current problems that he's having. Yeah, I think I'd uh, I'd be very careful about Jonathan Nice. Uh, he did, as you say, have that nice start to the season, but everything seems to be going in the wrong direction. Uh, one of our favorite columnists at BaseballHQ.com, Stephen Nickrand, we talk about him frequently here on the show. He's been a longtime columnist about starting pitchers. This year he has added batters to his um beat areas, if you want to call them that, uh, but we'll stick with the starting pitchers for now. He has a, a column up called Skill Changes. This is looking at how pitchers are faring this year versus last year on a skills basis, and one of the pitchers that popped up for Steven in his column was Alex Wood, the left-hander in Atlanta. Alex Wood has certainly not been producing at the level at which one would expect, and as Steven mentioned, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing real skill changes in, in Alex Wood and a drop in dominance and uh, uh, a slightly rising control and 
So uh, a 4.07 XERA at the time Stephen wrote the column. Uh, so certainly some worrisome things going on with Alex Wood. Now, Alex Wood himself acknowledged after a couple of starts ago that he needed to, um, uh, needed to make some adjustments. And uh, the last two starts, he'd been much better. One and run and seven innings pitched in each of his last two outings. So maybe, and in fact, if you look at the uh, his PQS, two of the last three have been the PQS dom. So maybe Wood has been able to figure out some of what was causing his problems and, and been able to turn things around. With those two encouraging performances, I certainly wouldn't drop him right away, but I would keep a very close eye on him. Nick, Alex Wood is another pitcher who has had health issues in the past. Could this be a situation of a pitcher either concealing or really not aware of a, an injury problem? It, it, it could be. I mean, certainly given Alex Wood's uh, history, that would be a, a possibility. Um, one of the things we notice as we look at what's uh, at what's really going on in terms of his overall uh, performance, though, his his velocity is not really down. It's been pretty good and been pretty consistent throughout the season. 90 miles an hour, 89, 90, 89, 90, 90. So pretty decent pitch velocity. What's been happening, however, is his swinging strike rates have been low. And so there may be something going on in terms of not getting the kind of movement on the ball that he's used to. Um, early on, swinging strike rate, early part of the season, about 6%. Last three starts, swinging strike rate up to 8%. So again, uh, there, there may be some adjustments there that uh, are going to turn things in a positive direction for Wood. Uh, as I said, I don't think I'd drop him right now, but I would keep a close eye on him. Well, the BaseballHQ.com staff that are responsible for projections uh, share your optimism, Nick. We're looking at uh, nine more wins, the balance of the season, 120 strikeouts in about the same number of innings, 321 ERA, a 122 whip of $15 or so. Uh, 122 whip would be nice considering it's at 150 right now. It sure would be very nice if to, to see things uh, come back up to that. And looking at a projected BPV as well of uh, – of 107 compared to the 64 he's at right now. So projections indicate that uh, that uh, he might, in fact, turn things around. And as I mentioned, uh, Stephen Nickrand also taking on batters this year in the Batters Buyer's Guide, and uh, he was looking at skill changes there as well, players whose skills have changed from 2014 to thus far in 2015, and a name that popped up on that list in the National League, Gerardo Pera in Milwaukee. Gerardo Pera is getting some more playing time, and Chris Davis has been pretty awful so far this season, so Gerardo Pera is beginning to see some playing time, and what you see as you look at Gerardo Pera in terms of this season is a huge increase in his power index and his expected power index, so um, if he gets the playing time, we might see more home runs and more power out of Gerardo Pera than we're used to seeing. Uh, batting average has always been pretty decent over the last few seasons, 292, 273, 268, 261, 287 at this point. So uh, batting average has been good, and if the power were suddenly there for Gerardo Pera, uh, he might be a very useful fantasy ball player. He's never been a big home run provider. I think his peak was 10 a couple of years ago in 600 at bat. So it's not like he lacked for opportunity, but he also rang up 10 stolen bases that year. And uh, there's something to be said for a 10-10 combination with a decent batting average. There certainly is a 9-9 a year ago. So uh, we've seen a couple of consistent uh, seasons of that. So uh, there may be some sneaky value here in Gerardo Perez. Certainly, I think a guy to keep uh, to keep your eye on at this point. 
Another interesting thing about Para is that uh, his batting average has almost always matched or exceeded his expected batting average since 2009. So he's full value for the batting average. This is not a hit rate based thing. It's not a fluky thing. His hit rate this year is 37%, which is kind of above normal. But even if it sank back to the 34 range, he'd still be a a solid 270, 265-ish hitter, which is good nowadays. Yeah, he would indeed. I mean, that's very good nowadays. And the other thing to note about him, of course, is that uh, his ground ball rate so far this season is down a little bit, fly ball rate up a little bit. And of course, uh, that would certainly help if the power if the power holds. Our projection is for four more home runs and four more bags. We're still only giving him a little bit over 200 at-bats, and if he continues to eat into Chris Davis's time, then you could expect the playing time to increase, and if that's the case, then all those counting stats should increase as well. Uh, Nick, thanks a million for helping us out. Good to have you back home, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols writes pitcher matchups analysis for BaseballHQ.com, and he's our man on the National League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now let's turn to the American League and BaseballHQ.com Director of News and Analysis, Jock Thompson. Jock, uh, welcome back to the show. You're out in Palm Springs? Yeah, we're in Palm Springs for a couple of days. I actually got to watch uh, Sean Newcomb pitch uh, the other day for the Angels uh, about an hour away in San Bernardino. He didn't do very well, but... uh, it was still fun getting up there and watching the Angels high A uh, players such as they are. <laughs> such as they are. Yeah, it is fun to go to minor league games, especially if you have some rooting interest. Uh, I used to like going to the uh, uh, minor league uh, games wherever I had an opportunity to see a guy who was on my reserve farm roster. And that happened uh, more, more often than you'd think. It, they were spread out enough, you know, so that you could get out and see them. It's fun. Yeah, exactly. And Sean Newcomb is actually on, on one of my deeper Dynasty League rosters, and he's going to stay there despite the fact that he didn't do very well last night. Yeah, that's the uh, hazard is that you can see a guy have an unusually good or unusually bad performance right in front of you, in front of your own eyes, and it can tend to color the overall picture a little more than sometimes it ought to because you always want to think, well, I saw him and he's great, or I saw him and he's terrible. When the uh, when the long term record indicates maybe something uh, in the other direction, you got to you got to be disciplined about it, like a lot of stuff in this game. Uh, and speaking of discipline, the bullpen discipline in the American League is uh, really undergoing some big changes, and almost all of them in the American League West. We talked last week about the situation in Texas. Neftali Feliz did not only lost the closer spot as you predicted, Jock, but now he's on the DL, and they called it an axillary abscess on his right side which sounds terrible and might be worse. Meanwhile, Sean Tolleson stepped right in, five straight saves. But let's talk about Feliz first. You've been looking at him for a while with this Rangers bullpen situation. What's going on with Neftali Feliz? Why is he out, and is there any chance he gets the job back? Well, the last time Feliz was really good was back in 2010. Uh, he saved 40 games, and it was the last time his strikeout uh, uh, rate, his uh, K-9, was in any range of a uh, of of what we call closer worthy. Uh, he had a 9.2 strikeout per nine rate then. Um, since then, he's been injured, had all kinds of injuries. His his velocity has been inconsistent. His strikeouts have have dropped to the seven range. He's cert- he's now got a 7.6 uh, K9. His control has never been ter- anything uh, to write home about, and neither is secondary pitches. I think the uh, I, I think the gig is up for Feliz. Uh, he used to have this history working for him. Um, I don't think he's going to get much of a chance to get his uh, job back when he gets when he gets uh, back from the DL, particularly if Tollison keeps pitching as well as he has. 
Well, you said a mouthful. As I said, five for five in save situations. You wrote about him in uh, BaseballHQ.com. Rod Truesdell wrote about him at length in playing time columns over the past week or so. What kind of pitcher is Sean Tolleson, and how likely is he to keep this up? Well, he's an interesting guy. He doesn't throw, like, overpoweringly hard. He averages about 93 miles an hour on his fastball, and he doesn't get a lot of ground balls. He has really good command, uh, and he, he really lives on the black with, uh, with breaking stuff, at least from what I've seen from him. The thing that I'm having trouble with is right now his numbers, he's striking out over, over 12 per nine innings and, and walking less than two. These are really great numbers in his first 22 innings. He's never done anything like that in his major league career before, and granted, it's only six innings. Um, so you've got to wonder what's going to happen to this guy who's not a ground ball pitcher. What happens in Arlington when the weather gets warmer? Is he, is he going to continue this run? Is this a breakout? Uh, it's really hard to say, but right now he looks terrific. The whole Texas bullpen has looked pretty good since Texas manager Jeff Bannister said that he was going to go by a, not even a closer by committee. It was going to be mix and match depending on situations. In fact, what all of us in the baseball analytics business say all managers should be doing rather than this limited role situation. The uh, Jamie Newberg blog about Texas, a really good read if you want to know what's going on down there, suggested that they were going to keep doing this. Uh, but now that Tolleson steps up, goes five for five, how can they? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and he's really the best thing they have in, in the bullpen. If, if you really want to hedge your bets a little bit on Texas, and I still think that pen is worth watching, um, the guy you want to w- look at is uh, Kelly Keone. Um, he's actually been terrific in May. He's really upped his game. He's, he's, he's struck out over 11 hitters uh, uh, in, in a little over 10, 11, 11 innings pitched. Um, his walk rate is down below three, and he looks like he's developing. He throws in the mid-90s. He looks like a, a closer in waiting. I don't like that ground ball percentage that uh, Sean Tolleson has brought to the table in uh, Arlington. That's not the kind of uh, trajectory mix you want. You want to see them batting the ball on the ground because if it gets in the air, even though uh, Texas is not the home run park it used to be, it's still a pretty nice hitter's park. That's exactly right, and uh, and that's why based on his uh, really kind of a skimpy history, um, you still have to watch that bullpen in, uh, in Tolleson. Don't, don't put him in in pen yet, but boy, if, if he's available on your free agent list, grab him now. You also wrote about a bullpen situation also in the Lone Star State. Closer Luke Gregerson of the Astros has been struggling lately, although he did get the save the other night. What's going on with the Astros? Well, Gregerson has hit a rough patch in May. Uh, I, 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 looked, I took a hard look at him in the preseason, and he signed that big contract, which all but gave him the closer role, and then he won it in May, I think, or I'm sorry, in March, uh, mainly because of the contract. He has good metrics. Uh, he's, he's got very good skills. He's a ground ball guy. He's a control guy. He doesn't strike out a lot of guys. His, his, his dom has been falling for a while. He, strike out, he strikes out maybe seven, eight batters a game. Um, he really depends on his hit rate uh, uh, situation um, for his for his best innings, and he ran into a rough patch in uh, May where his control was off. He, he threw a few more fly balls than normal, and sure enough, his his hit rate luck turned against him, and his ERA was uh, over four for a while. Um, he also uh, left the team for I think a family medical emergency. Um, so uh, you know, again, this is the kind of guy who's not going to blow away hitters constantly, and. Uh, he could cough up a few saves. Uh, um, he, he's just not a prototypical closer, and that's what's kind of interesting in Houston, giving all their other arms. 
Well, you said a mouthful. They've got a lot of choices. Uh, Chad Qualls uh, has four saves already, and he was the guy in the closer role last year. You also have a bunch of other guys who should at least draw some interest from Houston management and from fantasy owners. Yeah, Pat Neshek, he was also acquired during the offseason, and, and just like Qualls and uh, and Gregerson, he's a control specialist. He keeps the walks way down. In fact, there's nobody in that pen who's walking a lot of people. He strikes out maybe seven, eight batters uh, 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 per nine innings. And the last I checked, Neshek hasn't even given up a walk this year. And, and then you've got two guys who are, who are both getting increasingly high leverage innings, Will Harris and Josh Fields. Both uh, have been huge dominant. Uh, strikeout per nine guys this year. Um, Harris is a big surprise. Fields is missing more bats than anyone in that uh, in that bullpen. He's striking out over 15 batters per nine innings. And from the left side, don't forget Tony Sipp, who got a handful of saves last year and who's posting a, 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 a sub-three ERA and 10-plus dom right now. Houston has never been reluctant to mix and match uh, the saves and spread the responsibility around, and they have the arms to do this. Yeah, nobody's ever seemed to trust Tony Sipp, I think partly because of the left-handed issue, uh, because not only do you have the disadvantage a little more often, the fact is they like to have that left-hander, especially an, a knockdown left-hander like Sipp, as a left-handed out specialist to take care of the other guy's big left-handed bats, and too often that doesn't lead to save situations and save opportunities. Yeah, and in fact, I think most of Tony Sipp's save opportunities, I think he got two or three last year, came up with runners on base and when a lefty was up. So uh, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he's in the pen and, uh, and the other options have failed and a left-hander's up with the game on the line to see them turn to him occasionally. It is an interesting situation. We did some research at Baseball HQ last year that suggests that the way to, the way to go when you're looking for closers is find teams that win games. And uh, Houston, to the surprise of quite a few people, is winning games this year. More wins means more save opportunities, contrary to what other people might have told you. Uh, over in Oakland, we're still in the American League West. Not that there's really a, an immediate urge for change, but Sean Doolittle, who was very effective last year as the closer, is finally back and pitching after his uh, injury rehab. How does that affect the closer situation for the A's? Yeah, really, the only change here is that Doolittle eventually is going to get his job back. Uh, um, it sounds like Oakland's going to ease him into the role gradually over Tyler Clippard. But the interesting thing here is with his, his arm problems, uh, uh, Doolittle's coming back with reportedly reduced velocity. Now, he still has that great deception, and that's one of the reasons, uh, as a lefty, he's still been so tough on right-handed hitters, and he was terrific last year. But it's going to be interesting to see what the reduced velocity does to him. Uh, Clippard has not looked terrific, despite his good surface stats. His strikeouts are down, his walks are up. So this is still a very interesting situation to monitor. Yeah, I've been wondering about Tyler Clipper just in general, and if Doolittle can't get the job done because of the reduced velocity, as you mentioned, uh, is there anyone else in that Oakland pen that fantasy owners should be looking at in case Clipper and Doolittle can't get it done? Yeah, if you're if you're simply looking at uh, strikeout to walk uh, metrics, uh, Evan Scribner's been terrific, and his ERA is is somewhere around two point three as we as we speak right now. He struck out almost eleven hitters a game. He's walking less than three batters a game. Um, Evan Scribner would be a very good guy to have, particularly in deep leagues where bullpen uh, stats uh, really count. And uh, he would be the guy behind Tyler Clippard if for some reason Doolittle and Clippard, neither of them could get it done or fail later in the year. And finally in Seattle, Fernando Rodney, how about this? 698 ERA. 
that sounds like enough on its own to get him replaced, but he's still in there in the closer role, and that might be because nobody in the Seattle pen has really done very well. It's been an implosion of sorts. They sent 2014 setup man and seeming closer and waiting Danny Farquhar's down in AAA. So give us the give us the scoop on the Seattle situation, Jock, starting first with Fernando Rodney. Well, Rodney's been awful, like you mentioned. He's, he's been scored upon in six of his last nine games. Um, he's suffered from some bad uh, home run fly ball, uh, per fly ball luck. But along with that, he's really showing his age, which is he's 38 now. His strikeouts are down. His walks are up. Two things are saving him right now. The first being that in most of his save opportunities, the Mariners have actually given him enough runs to survive most of his blowups. Yeah, in fact, he's 13 for 15 in save opportunities. And, of course, managers make a lot of these closer job decisions based on wins, so Rodney's issues haven't exactly cost the Mariners dearly to this point. But the other thing was also something that you touched on earlier, and that is, along with with Farquhar's demotion, the Seattle pen has completely fallen apart after that terrific 2014. And uh, Lloyd McClendon has enough issues figuring out who's going to get him to the ninth inning already without uh, taking Rodney out of his job. But at some point, Jock, he's 38 years old, Fernando Rodney. He's going to be a free agent at the end of the year. Seattle's going to have to do something. Um, it seems unlikely they'd want to re-sign him, given the, the advanced salaries that seasoned veterans get. So is Farquhar in any way a responsibility, or what about Carson Smith? Yeah, uh, Farquhar's got a lot to prove. He just got demoted, uh, as, as, as we've mentioned here. Um, his strikeouts are way down. He struck out over 10 hitters per nine innings last year. Now he's down to 7.6. His velocity is down. In fact, his velocity's now been down for two straight years. Um, he's had a little bit of a home run uh, per fly ball, uh, some, some bad luck in that area, too. But, but he's proven to be very erratic the last couple of years. I actually think Carson Smith has eclipsed everybody in that bullpen as far as uh, uh, the next closer for the Mariners, of course. Yeah, uh, like you said, they could go out and sign somebody. I don't think they're going to re-sign uh, a 38-year-old and deteriorating uh, Fernando Rodney. But if they're looking internally, uh, Carson Smith, uh, almost a 70% ground ball rate. Uh, his ERA so far this year is less than one. Really a terrific pitch- pitcher. Um, I think he's, he's a closer of the future there in Seattle. Might not be the closer of the near future unless Rodney really falls apart. Now, Smith has been very effective getting them through the eighth inning, and as we saw with the Dellen Pedanza situation in New York, sometimes managers like to know that the eighth inning is taken care of, and then they'll figure out what they're going to do with the closer after that. They just need to get through that eighth. And Seattle, looking at a really bad bullpen situation altogether might be looking at this situation saying the one thing we know is working is that Carson Smith is getting guys out in the eighth we'll just leave him there for now and we'll figure all the rest of it out with whatever we can cobble together I think in the longer term that Carson Smith might be the guy who steps up maybe next year uh, depending on how the how the Mariners do this year and it there's an outside chance also Jock don't you think that Rodney could literally pitch himself out of the closer role and force the hand of the Mariners Oh, sure, absolutely, and, and you're absolutely right about that eighth inning. Um, it has been Smith's for the last couple of weeks. He's been very good at it. Uh, getting to the eighth or, or getting into the ninth is, is, uh, is just as important as that ninth inning. 
We do have some news from the American League, Jock, that's not about closers. In Boston, we're going to have a Major League debut by Eduardo Rodriguez. This was covered by Matt Dodge at BaseballHQ.com. How seriously should we be looking at Eduardo Rodriguez? Well, that's a tough call in the short term uh, because this almost sounds like, at least from the the initial reports, this could be a one-and-done for Boston as they reset their rotation. That said, if, uh, if Rodriguez has one good start, the rotation has been so bad, he could make them think about changing it permanently or, or at least uh, un, 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 until, he, uh, until he blows up. Um, he started the year very well at AAA. He's fallen off a tick over his last four starts. He hasn't pitched as well as he did in April. And remember, he's going into a hitter's park, and he's playing for a team right now that's struggling both on offense and defense, which is never good for a, 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 a rookie starting pitcher, pitcher making his uh, major league debut. I like him a lot more longer term than I like him right now uh, in the immediate small sample, particularly against a, a Texas team today that's hitting very well. This is a tougher call. It is, and uh, you know, any I think regardless of what a guy's done in AAA, the first start in the major leagues is always going to be a crapshoot. And once in a while, you're going to get a guy who ch- comes out of the gate just charging and has a terrific start. More often, there's a confidence issue. There's, uh, you know, just the holy cow, look at me, I'm in Fenway Park thing, and you can uh, you can empathize with the situation. But yeah, it is definitely going to be a difficult uh, call for fantasy owners to make. Uh, over in Detroit, Kyle Lobstein was doing all right not spectacular this year. He's now on the DL, a sore left shoulder, and both Tom Kephart and Bob Berger in playing time today and tomorrow at BaseballHQ.com. Note that Buck Farmer will be picking up the start. He's a prospect. Uh, how does he look? Most scouts and observers like Rodriguez over the long haul better than Farmer, but actually if you had to make a choice just between this these two, that might look like more of a toss-up. Uh, Farmer has a little bit of major league experience. Uh, he got bombed in his, in his uh, one or two starts last year. I think he has a better chance to stick with Detroit. He, he, the experience counts, and he plays for a good team. And he's really not that bad a prospect. Uh, he's a strike thrower. His his velocity isn't soft. He throws low mid nineties. Um, he's not a ground ball guy, which uh, is is uh, is it, it doesn't hurt him that much in Comerica Field. Um, but just the fact that he might be getting more opportunity than uh, Rodriguez early on. If you're if you're going to speculate on on young pitching. Um, He's a flyer, but again, I think I think both of us realize that uh, that young pitching uh, is it's a crapshoot to say the least. Jock, thanks a million for helping us out again with the American League. We'll catch up with you again next week. Thanks, PD. Jock Thompson is the director of news and analysis at BaseballHQ.com and our man on the American League beat here at Baseball HQ Radio. Hang in there. Coming up next, our regular talk with Todd. It's Todd Zola next on Baseball HQ Radio. They're waiting for the numbers to change. There it goes. Cal Ripken comes out, raises his arm with a cap, and here is the ovation that he gets. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. BaseballHQ.com is working 24-7 to give you everything you need to succeed. Like these features, Stephen Nickrand has those skill changes columns we discussed earlier in the pod, covering both starting pitchers and batters in his Buyer's Guide columns. In our excellent minor league series, The Eyes Have It, Chris Blessing gets some in-person scouting on first base prospect DJ Peterson and outfield prospect Gabriel Guerrero from the Seattle organization. And our playing time today roster coverage looks at Sean Doolittle and Austin Jackson returning from the DL, CJ Cron's demotion to the minors, and Gordon Beckham's growing playing time at third base for the White Sox. 
BaseballHQ.com updates content every day across a wide range of terrific information, like those buyer's guide skills assessment columns, performance validation in facts and flukes, roster changes in playing time today and tomorrow, daily matchups, team coverage, minor league scouting, and so much more. And those great tools like our projections and other roster management systems you can use to help you dominate your league or daily fantasy. And it's all only at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners at BaseballHQ.com. Now it's time for our regular weekly talk with Todd, and it's a pleasure to be joined by Todd Zola, contributor to BaseballHQ.com, Chandler Park, ESPN, Fantasy Alarm, Masters Ball, and others. Todd Zola, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Really good to be here, Patrick. Uh, earlier this week, uh, you had your annual presentation of Park Factors at FantasyAlarm.com, which is always interesting, and you identified some oddities that might run counter to people's perceptions. For instance, Yankee Stadium, you say, is neutral for runs. Can this be? Uh, absolutely. Now, in the, 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 the piece, the column, was a, a of the series related to what I do for my daily projections and uh, presented the different park factors for all the different statistics that are used in DFS scoring. But at the end, uh, not everybody is that granular. Some people more of a Zen lineup and they just look, th- look over and they, okay, that's a hitter's park. That's a pitcher's park, yada, yada, yada. Uh, so I went through them and like you, like you sec- suggested, Yankee Stadium, the launching pad for both. I think people, the curiosity or the, the, the quirk might be that, that it's as good for right-handed power as it is for left-handed power. Uh, almost anyway, but it doesn't stop there. It is neutral for runs, at least according to the the uh, the statistics that the the calculation that Baseball Info Solution uses, the Bill James Handbook. It comes out for the three-year average of being neutral for runs. So uh, you shouldn't be afraid to use a you know, especially a home pitcher, especially a uh, a Yankee a Yankee starter at home. Whether you use an away starter depends upon how you feel about the Yankees lineup. But I am no longer shying away from starting, well, I don't think I'll ever shy away from Michael Pineda, but a Chase Whitley or one of their lesser pitchers, I'm not going to shy away from using them in Yankee Stadium because of the fact that it's a uh, hitter's park, because it's not. But the run neutrality of the park is at least somewhat independent of its propensity to surrender home runs. They're two different things. And so because the the run profile of the park is made up of all the pitchers who pitch there. Would you be leery about a, pitching a guy in Yankee Stadium with a home run profile, a home run prone pitcher like, say, what about Phil Hughes? Not Phil Hughes, because uh, to me the the next stat to look at down the line is walks. Um, because one of the things about fly ball pitchers is they don't give up as many hits. When the fly balls stay in the yard, they're generally caught. So the next thing I'm going to look at is the walks. And if he, if the pitcher has got a particularly good walk rate, then I'm not going to be afraid. If he gives up a home run, it's going to be a one-run home run. It's not likely to be a two- or three-run shot that it, you know kills your, your ratios all at once. So to me, it's not any single number, but you know, Phil Hughes is a great example because he has a very, very, very good walk rate. Uh, another fly ball pitcher that walks... I don't know if there's a cutoff of in my head, 2.8, 3.0 maybe. Anybody with that walk rate, I'm a little bit more hesitant to use for sure. Give us some other examples of parks that might surprise us insofar as uh, how we think of them versus how they actually play. 
Okay, sure. Uh, City Field is is you know we'll stay in Yankee Stadium. We'll we'll go to City Field. They be keep moving the fences in, especially in right field. And sure enough, it's more of a home run park, but it still plays as one of the better pitchers' parks as far as run prevention in the league. So even though home runs, the Mets might not be hitting more, but the park itself is allowing more home runs. It's still one of the better pitchers' parks in the league. Uh, same can be said about Dodger Stadium. Uh, they changed actually several years ago at this point, but they renovated, they moved home plate relative to where the, the fences are, and it became m- more of a home run park. However, it's still very much a pitcher's park as far as, as, as runs go. There's, you know, a couple of examples where, uh, don't get fooled by the additional home. Actually, the thing with Dodger Stadium is, I don't think, I think people think it's a pitcher's park, but don't realize that it's not bad for home runs. Um, a couple of the other ones like Yankee, to me, these are the more, the most important ones, uh, like Yankee Stadium, uh, Great American Ballpark, uh, one of the best hitters parks as far as home runs go in the league, but it plays pretty much neutral for runs. Same with Citizens Bank in Philadelphia and Minute Maid. It, they all embellish home runs, but don't be afraid to use your your pitcher there. If I mean, I guess the, if the, if he's good with walks, if he has a good walk rate, don't be afraid to use your pitchers in those parks because the numbers say that it plays neutral for runs. What about looking around the other way? Are there any parks that you found that have the general public perception of being pitchers' parks, solid pitchers' parks that are in fact either neutral or perhaps even verge towards being good hitters' parks? Um, yeah, actually there are. And, that, and again, this is another, uh, to me, important. To me, it's not as important for the hitter as it is for the pitcher. Um, the, I think as far as streaming, pitchers go for both seasonal and if you play the DFS daily game. Target Field, I think we've got the perception that it's a pitcher's park, and it does suppress homers, but it's actually beneficial for runs. Um Marlin Stadium, Marlins Park, to me is one of the uh, biggest outliers in that it it squashes home runs. It doesn't just just you know suppress them; it squashes them. But yet, Mar it plays neutral for for runs. So I'm you know I'm going to start my away pitcher in Marlins Park. Well, you might want to do it because of the the offense. However, it don't necessarily do it because of the park because for runs it's neutral. Um, what do you think about uh, Kauffman Stadium? Which, 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 where do you think, you know, Pitcher's Park or Hitter's Park? Well, I know that the uh, perception definitely is that it's a Pitcher's Park. Well, the perception is that it's a Pitcher's Park, but it squashes power like Marlins Park, but it too is actually playing fairly neutral, playing neutral for runs. It's actually a little bit positive. Now, I mean, the three-year average, if it's a 101 and 102, if 100 is neutral, it, to me, you know, that's neutral. Uh, but the numbers come out just a tip over 100, which means that starting a, a Royals pitcher might not be as safe as you might think, or starting a, in a way, pitcher to face the Royals might not be as safe as you think, especially because the Royals have got such a strong offense and, and rarely strike out. But the point being, Kauffman Stadium uh, squashes power, but you can still score some runs there. Um, so I, I think that there's, there's some of the other way, there's some that go in the other direction as well, or, or a different direction. Uh, place like Comerica, uh, hitters or pitchers park. 
Again, I know the perception is that it's a big field, so it's a pitcher's park. Right. Now, actually, it's a hitter's park. And not only is it a hitter's park, it's on a par with Fenway and Toronto Rogers Center as far as just how much it increases runs. Now, we did, you know, we alluded to the fact that the calculation is supposed to flesh out the bias of the home team's hitting and pitching. I don't think it completely fleshes it out. So it, there could be some residual impact or influence of the Tigers being such a strong offense. But this is a 7%, 8% increase. I, I think we can say that in general, Comerica is more of a hitter's park than we might think. And, and, you know, Turner Field, I think we think is a pitcher's park, but that too is, uh, playing fairly neutral for runs. So, you know, they're all listed, you know, all listed here on, on you know, on the fantasy alarm and, and, and baseball HQ's got the park factors as well. And they use the, uh, color code to determine, you know, good parks, bad parks for the, for hits and home runs and for runs. And I think it, it's definitely worth going over every year, uh, cause, you know, our, what we think in our heads and what we hear about a park and what we hear announcers say sometimes about parks aren't always the case. A Globe Life Park is in Texas. Arlington is another one in that the, there's been some recent renovations that have reduced the wind or the, it used to be a, like a tunnel effect. It's no longer there. And power for right-handed hitters is, is way down. It's still up for lefties. So Prince Fielder, you're still okay. But power for right-handed hitters in Texas is, 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 down more than than it's it's down and we may not realize that you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about uh, Kauffman Stadium being playing a little bit run positive and uh, you then alluded to the fact that the statistic may or may not be able to quite fully um, neutralize for the particular hitting lineup and Kansas City is an interesting case in that point in that they are a really good hitting team they don't strike out a lot as you said they put a lot of balls in play which may benefit them in a big park because you know more chances for balls to fall in for hits and, and so forth and Todd do you think we just get too focused on the nature of the park effect perceived or real and sometimes fail to take sufficient account of who's playing right and not only that i think you, you actually you mentioned the team that got me thinking and I'm, I'm working on the data now for my next uh post at fantasy alarm and that's disconnects between strong pitching staff slash weak pitching staffs and good and bad pitching parks and with hitters in the offense as well because uh, i think you nailed it kansas city you know they play to their park and that's one of the biases you can't flesh out is they're a team you know a gap hitting team they run they take advantage of the fact that it's a big park and that actually helps their offense whereas that same style might not play as well in in a small u.s cellular within their division or some of these other smaller parks so that might so there that you can't flesh out the bias it's not so much the bias they flesh out is the luck and the what pitches you go against and the weather, you, I don't think you can flesh out the bias of the type of team. And that's exactly what I'm going to be looking at is, at least this season, different teams and where you might be fooled as to, you know, a good or bad play in a particular park. Uh, we can, t- you know, we'll have a little more, more examples to talk about that next week. But that's, you know, your intuition is spot on. There's, there's definitely something to that in that the quality of opponent is just as important, if not more so, than the park factor. Yeah, that's what I thought the the outcome would be. That you can put 
a, a really good hitting team almost anywhere, they're going to hit. And if you think that that's going to be neutralized by the, by the location, I think sometimes that gets overstated. Right, but if you, if you take a team that, that, takes, that goes first to third, that, that runs a lot, you put them in a smaller park, they might not be able to get the extra base as much. We, you know, so I, I think you know, taking so a lot of this is is subjective, but I think when you're looking for the edges, and if you know the game, this is where you can pick up an edge, an edge or two, uh, seeing what teams come into the park, come into parks. Now, you know, if another team that has a similar profile as Kansas City comes in a cop, and I think you can consider them to get the same benefits. Whereas if a, you know, if the Detroit Tigers come into Kansas City. I, you know, they're the home run team. They're the slugging team. They rely on the home run. They might not get the same positive run benefit from Kaufman that, it, that another team might. So I think that, you know, I, I know, I hold, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to start a, I'm trying, Danny, well, Danny, Danny Duffy's hurt right now, but I'm not going to start uh, a kick, you know, an Edison Volquez against Detroit. Well, at home, I think I might because I don't think they're going to gain the same benefit. Of the big part of, of the run producing part of Kaufman than another team might. Yeah, I was just going to suggest that you might want to look at how what percentage of each team's runs scored are generated by home runs because that then then you're not talking about run neutrality. You do have to look at the park's suppression or uh, encouragement of home run rates, which is a, a different kettle of fish. Right. It, it's it's yeah exactly not just knowing the number but going the, the next step and and knowing what makes the number up. Oftentimes will give you advantage in, you know, today's day and age where everybody wants to do things quickly and they see a number and they base a decision. If you take the time to take the next step and understand where the number come from, comes from, what makes it up. I mean, I think that's, maybe that's goes back to my, my years in, in, in science and, and, and not just taking things at face value, but wanting to know where it came from. Uh, I can give you a myriad of examples right now as far as, you know, I hear things, you know, would be it, be it there's a new study out there that that shows that hot streaks might be real. We talked a little bit about that in the past. Without, I'm not saying the study's wrong or anything else, but without actually seeing the study, I don't want to take the result verbatim. I want to see the study and I want to see what the examples were and what the process was, and and then I want to know if I agree or disagree with that conclusion. So same th- sort of thing here is, you know, 101 run factor for Kansas City is great, but where does that come from? Uh, some of it comes from uh, you know, parks, why they may be weird. You know, Fenway Park, one of the reasons, well, other than the Green Monster, it's got no foul territory. So one of the reasons why it's so great for runs, but not necessarily for home runs, is there's just so many fewer pop-ups that, that get caught for outs, and that actually impacts strikeout and walk factors. Those Those are also... We don't talk anything about that, but parks have their own strikeout factors and their own walk factors. That gets important and more in the DFS than anything else, and that has to do with the batting eye and you know foul territory and and thing and things of that. You know how much pitchers break, how much pitches break at altitude, that sort of thing. Uh, we didn't necessarily talk about that, but in the piece, actually break down strikeout and walk factors for the parks as well. Yeah, the BaseballHQ.com park factors do include strikeouts. Uh, Todd, when it comes to home runs, I remember before the season when Nelson Cruz signed in Seattle, there was uh, a lot of 
analysis that said, oh, this is going to run counter to Nelson Cruz's ability to hit for power because it's not a conducive home run park. And then somebody came out with a study that showed how far he'd hit all his home runs the previous years. And like all but one of those home runs would have been out of uh, Seattle's park, just as they were out of all the other parks, because no matter how big it is, if you're hitting it farther than the outfield fence, it's a home run. I feel when I, the work that I do, I might have an advantage over some people. But this is an area where I, I, I wholly cop to not having an advantage because I cannot do this granular analysis on every single player and still, you know, produce what I need to produce, you know, my promise, my customers, et cetera. And, and that's, you know, that's just a fact is that, that you do the park overlay, you, you correct for the weather and the conditions. And like you suggest, they were able to show that Nelson Cruz would have hit, you know, home runs anywhere. Um, you know, my, my sort of straight, you know, he hit homers in Baltimore, great park effect. He's going to Seattle, not such a great park effect. And, you know, the number of home runs are reduced. So I, to me, it, when I was doing what I do, I'm at a disadvantage, I think, in certain cases. And, you know, Cruz to me was a swing and miss. Uh, I work at ESPN I, and I work with Tristan Cockroft. And one of the reasons we work so well together is, I do the big, you know, I do the big picture and he has the time then to look at these outliers and we discuss them and he caught Cruz and we talked about it and we adjusted Cruz accordingly. So, and I think it, if you have the ability as, a, you know, as a user, as not a producer of these numbers to look for things like that, the information is out there and you can get yourself an edge, you know, look, look for players different in different parks just that sort of thing and you know i was not on cruise and, and you're on cruise and you're, you're you know you're beating my pants in the league i was on cruise and it was mostly because of that uh, overlay analysis that i saw i ended up getting him in tout mixed for 14 dollars, i think uh, because so many people were leery of his ability to repeat what he had done the year before because of this park effect business among other things uh, and uh, we'll talk about those in a second yeah, it's baseball hq radio patrick davitt with todd zola and todd uh, speaking of nelson cruz there was a terrific game the other night between the nationals and the cubs and i'm coming to nelson cruz here in a second scherzer versus lester a terrific matchup of great pitchers. The Nationals won on a home run. Bryce Harper hit his 18th home run of the year, and he's tied with Nelson Cruz for the overall lead in the majors. Now, this is, to me, raises an interesting question for an analyst like you, Todd. Harper has not been as prodigious a power hitter in his young career so far, despite all his potential, as he's turning out to be this year. While Cruz has been a pretty prolific power hitter, but last year, he fell off pretty badly in the second half. His slugging was off by 100 points. His uh, home run per at-bat rate was off significantly after the All-Star break last year. So let me ask you this as an analyst. Between Harper and Cruz, who do you think is likelier to be a power hitter for the whole rest of the year without falling off? Wow, that's a, a great question. Because if you, I mean, the other thing about that Harper home run is he, he took Lester the opposite way. He, he put it over the left field. The left field Ivy, if you will. Man, um, cause the other thing about Cruz is I had a bias going into the year that he's injury prone and he's not. He's effectively played 158 games the past three seasons cause the one that he played 108, he missed 50 because of his, uh, he was putting time out for 50 games. Uh, you know, Harper, is he going to get injured? Let's, all right, let's, let's throw health out of it. Right. Let's just put, let's throw health out of it cause we can't predict it. What if they both play a full season? Wow, um, it's uh, 
you know, I'm gonna. I'll, it's a guess. I don't know. I don't know how to put numbers to it. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna give it to Harper because he is younger and less likely to get fatigued and all that sort of stuff. And and I think he's always had the talent. What did, I think I read a quote somewhere like, you know, uh, you know, what what took him so long? He's 22. Well, he's 22. So a lot of t- Wade Boggs wasn't in the majors till he was 26. So I I think he he finally could be getting to that age. Uh, where he, I don't want to say he's getting it, but things are falling into place. And I don't know if he'll lead the NL in homers because there will be, a, believe it or not out there, fans, he, he will slow down. Uh, but Harper versus Cruz, I'll take, I'll take Harper. And fair enough. Uh, I think I'm going to take Harper as well, although I, I have to say that I think Cruz can maintain. The, the question is, he's an older guy, as you say, and certainly the possibility exists that he's going to slow down as he did last year. And on the balance of probabilities, I think a rising player is probably a better bet than a declining player for a lot of different reasons. Is there any chance, though, Todd, do you think someone else altogether will be in the league lead in home runs at the end of the season? Or let me let me put it this way. Who do you think is the likeliest non-Cruz, non-Harper guys to lead their leagues in home runs? I, st- I don't think you can count Rizzo or Goldschmidt out in the National League. I think you, I think because Harper's got such a boost, such a lead right now, you have to have him the favorite. But if anybody is going to end up catching him, you know, once the winds turn, once it gets warm in, in Wrigley Field, I think Rizzo could. And Goldschmidt's always a threat if he can stay healthy in, in Arizona. In the American League, uh, you know, sure, sure, Mike Trout could, can do anything. I don't think there's anything you can't do. He could he could get hot and he could end up leading the league. But uh, off the top of my head, I don't. No, no one else is uh, is is coming to. Well, I guess Josh Donaldson would would be the other guy if I were to say, especially because he's hitting uh, so much higher in the order, second in the order now. He's going to get that extra ten or twelve chances, and I think Josh Donaldson could be the guy uh, if anybody overtakes Cruz. Now, real quick about Cruz, we talk you talk about the second half swoon. He's played in Texas and he's played in Baltimore. Both cities are known for their hot, humid. Weather, you know, once the summer, the dog days of August, etc. He's going to be playing in the climate-controlled uh, Seattle Safeco Field. I wonder if that'll have an impact on him, and if he might just, you know, not be as influenced at the old age, you know, just by getting the heat and everything else being tired. I wonder right. if that's going to. I wonder if that'll have an impact. I'll tell you what, I've spent some time in Baltimore in the summertime, and it is hellacious. The humidity is so bad, and it's so hot and so muggy. And I wonder, isn't there also something, Todd, about the hot, muggy weather suppressing home runs because the air is denser and it's harder for the ball to fight its way through? There's, <laughs> there's, uh, Yes, I, I forget what it is. It's either, either, either that is the case or it's not the case, and I, I should know these things because <laughs> there's something out there that's, counterintuitive and it, it might be the it might be when it's cold there's something out there that's counterintuitive uh to what it, to to at least the way my mind works i'm pretty sure you're right though that the, the hot muggy weather the 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 you know the, the the way you know the atmosphere more moisture being in the atmosphere does put more drag on the ball and that could be the case and maybe maybe that's the case and, and again with the climate controlled weather of, of seattle uh, especially with the air conditioning, if it's blowing out, if they put the air conditioning blowing out, then, uh, hey, maybe he could k- keep this up. I checked it out online, and the hot, moist air that we associate with Texas and Baltimore and Washington, D.C., for that matter, is uh, 
a mixed blessing for batted ball travel distance. The fact that the air is hot is a help because it spreads out the molecules and makes the air less dense. So the uh, baseball has less air molecules to fight through, but the humidity means there's a lot of water molecules in the air, and that makes it more difficult for the baseball to travel through. And it, I didn't see this anywhere, but it seems that the water would be more of a problem than the air because water's just bigger, and therefore the density would be more of a problem. With the the best kind of environment is hot, dry air, like you get in Denver in the summertime, I guess. Uh, Todd, Bryce Harper also leads the National League with uh, 4.3 wins above replacement, including defense. Who do you suppose is the leader in the American League? And I'll give you a hint. It's probably not who you think. Take a guess, though. You know, I, I, I'm i going to cop to, I'm not going to say I don't believe in war, but I don't use war in my, in my analysis, so I actually have no idea. I'll say Kyle Seeger just because it, he hits and he plays defense. I don't know. Uh, that's actually a good guess. It's uh, Jason Kipnis of the uh, <laughs> Cleveland Indians. It uh, was having a good year with the uh, with the bat and I guess a slightly above average year with the glove, although Cleveland's defense is usually regarded fairly poorly. Yeah, well, actually, now that you mentioned, I'm not I'm not surprised. He is having a fantastic year, you know, with, with the with the bat. I can't speak towards his defense, uh, but that's interesting that uh, that that. Uh, he would be leading in the, you know, in that stat. And I, um, it's, I don't, I don't, I'm more interested in the components of war than I am war itself. But it is, it is, you know, like it is a great way just to eyeball it. And now I need to look more into Kipnis. What's, you know, what's driving that, right? Uh, you know, that sort of thing. To me, it's, it's a nice filter as opposed to a, to use, I think it's a nice way to filter out and, and identify names that might catch your eye, at least, you know, that they now should be subjects of some further evaluation. And to me, the interesting name on the list, this is the baseball reference uh, version of war, by the way, there are a couple. The number five guy on the list in the American League is Mike Moustakis. Can you believe that after all the trouble he's had over the years? Right. I think we talked about Moustakis a couple weeks ago, and he came into the uh of my whole contact rate that he's been striking out much less than in the past. So I'm a little bit higher on Moustakis because of that. So I, I think it all runs together. Now I can't definitely can't speak towards his defense as far as, you know, is it on a par with Arenado and, and some of these other guys that we see picking it over at third base. But in a, in a, in a quarter of a season, I suppose, depending upon the metrics and how they measure, if, you know, I, if he's making all the right plays, I can see where, he wouldn't be hurt too much anyway. Yeah, he's having a good year. Lorenzo Cain is fourth for Kansas City. It's no wonder they're doing well. Uh, it's Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Todd Zola. Todd at FantasyAlarm.com, you also had an interesting column recently about some other fairly advanced stats, weighted on base average. Uh, I'll call it WOBA, like a lot of people do for the rest of this uh, discussion. And also you mentioned weighted runs created plus and you said that they could be used as key metrics for playing daily fantasy. And I know some of our listeners are not going to be familiar with these. So in a nutshell, what is weighted on-base average? Weighted on-base average is a souped-up on-base percentage in that the different components that go into weighted on-base average, they're given a, a coefficient, which is sort of tied to the run matrix so that it's more of a measure of, if you want to think of what it, what it's a measure of, it's a, it's a measure of RBIs. It's a measure of runs. Uh, actually, it, it, it correlates 90, 90 to 94% with runs. So it became sort of the go-to metric in DFS for just a good, a good pick because that's sort of what you want to, 
what in, in, who's going to have a good game that night, the highest WOBA is the highest run potential, and that's sort of a nice proxy for who's going to have the best game. So, it's, again, it's, you take all the different components, and, you know, a double's going to have a, it's, have a higher percentage of getting you a run than a, than a single and a triple and a home run, et cetera. So there's some coefficients that are attached to each. The caveat being that it's not a part corrected statistic, just like, you know, batting average and, and on base percentage, we don't, they're just in the, in the back of the baseball card. They are what they are. Uh, for analysis, you might want to know part corrected and WRC plus, uh, weighted runs created plus, is actually it, it incorporates woba, but it then has a park factor, and instead of being a decimal like like woba three forty two etc., it's like a park factor in that a hundred is a perfectly you know the average player. Anything below a hundred is a below average player. Anything above a hundred is an above average player. Uh, you know, depending upon what you're doing, and if you are if you're aware of what Woba is and it's non-park protected and then you realize he's going into a good or bad park or where he came from, you can sort of make the adjustment on the fly. Otherwise, you just it's probably better to look at one runs created plus. The problem is that's only available on fan graphs and whereas you can get weighted on base average in a few more places. Uh, but and Plus, it's easier to say Woba than it is to say Rukrukwa uh, or Rukrukla, <laughs> whatever, whatever you'd have to say for that. Uh, but so, you know, the actual study had to do with um, well, on base percentage has got, you know, batting average, a component of batting average hits. And, you know, we all the time, we talk about so-and-so's lucky because of a, a high BABIP or unlucky because of a low BABIP. I don't think I've ever heard analysis say, don't pick this guy. He's got a high WOBA, but it's a lucky WOBA. So I, what I did was I took a look first to see how well BABIP and, and WOBA correlate and then to see if there's anything to a lucky or an unlucky weighted on base, should we be a little reticent in our, you know, or, or not maybe not reticent, but cognizant of the luck and therefore incorporated that into the thinking and, and temper our use of it or at least be aware of it and uh, found some interesting, interesting results. Okay, do tell. What are the interesting results? Well, first, we, uh, we like to say that... Uh, you know, some things are intuitive, but it's always nice when intuition is backed up by numbers. And there is a correlation uh, between WOBA and BABIP. It's over 50%. Now, keep in mind that BABIP doesn't include home runs. And it also doesn't include strikeouts. So, and, and WOBA does include, does include them both. So a team that hits a lot of home runs might have a higher WOBA than, and, and it, that's not incorporated in their BABIP. And a team that strikes out a ton, it won't necessarily, it won't, won't, won't be reflected in their BABIP, but will be reflected in the WOBA. And that's why the correlation is, 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 I say only, that's why it's in the, in the 50 to 60% range and not higher because it is excluding those two, uh, factors, but it, there is some enough correlation in the 60, you know, a uh, 0.6% correlation factor to when one goes up, the other goes up, when one goes down, the other goes down. And what I found was that the hitter, if you look at a team hitter's WOBA, there's still some fluctuation. Because the other thing I did was look at the standard deviation of the different, the 30 teams versus the league average. And presently, the standard deviation for both BABIP and weighted on base is higher than what it will be into the year. And I can say that because I looked at what it was at the end of the past three years. 
And so that right now the standard deviation around the league mean is higher for both WOBA and for BABIP, which means there's some, there's going to be some movement in both. Now, the BABIP needs, it still has, it has more movement. The standard deviation is even higher than the normal. So it's, it, as one might expect, it, it's, it takes longer for it to stabilize, but there is, the, the standard deviations yet are still a little bit high for, uh, WOBA, which tells me anyway to at least glance at the BABIP. Don't just take it verbatim. At least look at a player's BABIP to see if it's out of line and, and maybe, maybe his chances to play that night aren't that great because of a high WOBA if it's being driven by a high BABIP. Pitchers are, we're not quite stable yet. It's a lot closer to being stable. So I'm more apt to use the WOBA against a pitcher or a pit, against the, the WOBA that pitcher's given up as being real. Uh, the standard deviation is still a little bit higher, but not that much. So I think we're at the point of the season where we don't have to think twice about using the WOBA against a pitcher. It's pretty much normal. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, Todd, thanks a lot for filling us in again. It's a lot to think about, but that's what makes the game fun is we get to think about this stuff. Yep. Well, you know, we, I'm not the guy that if you're going to want, you know, give me 10 names to pick up for my waiver wires this week, but hopefully I'm the guy that, that helps you think about how to go about doing it. And that's, uh, in the long run, makes you more successful and allows you to have more fun at the game. Todd, thanks. We'll catch up with you again in a week's time. Looking forward to it. All right, brother, stay busy. That's Todd Zola from BaseballHQ.com, ChandlerPark.com, ESPN, of course, uh, FantasyAlarm.com, as we talked about, and the mothership is MastersBall.com. Uh, any place Todd Zola's writing, you should be reading. When we come back, we'll have our Baseball HQ commentaries, pitcher matchups, and master notes next on Baseball HQ Radio. Boogie Wilson still hoping to win it for New York. Three and two, the count. And the pitch by Stanley. And a ground ball. Trickling. It is a fair ball. Gets by Buckner. Down the third night. The Mets will win the ball game. The Mets win. They win. Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Now it's time for our regular Friday commentaries. Coming up, we'll have Ray Murphy with Master Notes. But right now, it's our pitcher matchup report. BaseballHQ.com has developed algorithms to determine the strength or weakness of every starting pitcher matchup based on opponent, park, and other factors. Pitchers score from minus 5 to plus 5. We recommend pitchers whose matchup ratings are plus 2 or higher, while we suggest you avoid pitchers with matchup ratings below 0. Everything between 0 and 2 is something you have to look at from a risk-benefit analysis. Here with some of this weekend's matchups, including San Diego right-hander Tyson Ross hosting the Pirates righty Charlie Morton and Cubs right-hander Jason Hamill at home to Kansas City righty Jordano Ventura, it's BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Fishwick. Welcome to the final weekend in May with this Monday bringing us into June and the one-third mark on the Major League Baseball regular season calendar. Time to start making your moves in fantasy leagues or winning your money back in daily games. So let's start with the two highest matchup ratings from the BaseballHQ.com Pitcher Matchups tool this weekend. They're both over three, both on Saturday, and both from the National League. Tyson Ross of the San Diego Padres rules the weekend with a matchup rating of 345 at home in pitcher-friendly Petco Park to face the Pittsburgh Pirates' recently returned right-hander Charlie Morton, who has a matchup rating of minus 163. 
Ross is featured in BaseballHQ.com analyst Greg Pyron's just-published Facts and Flukes column. He pointed out the only flaw in Ross's profile, an uncharacteristic control rate of 4.6 walks per nine innings pitched. If he can rein in that problem while maintaining his career-high ground ball rate of 64% and dominance rate of 10.4 strikeouts per nine, a correction of his 36% hit rate would put Ross in elite company. Even with his control problems and hit rate misfortune, in his first 10 starts, Ross has eight PQS dominant performances and no PQS disasters. Ross should be doggone good in this one Saturday. The second best matchup rating of the weekend is 325. It belongs to Chicago Cubs right-hander Jason Hamill, who's at home in the friendly confines of Wrigley Field for the lone interleague game against the Kansas City Royals and Jordano Ventura, whose matchup rating is 215. Hamill was the subject of BaseballHQ.com analyst Ryan Bloomfield's Facts and Flukes column at the beginning of the week. He noted that Hamill was doing just what we wish Ross would do, demonstrating exceptional control with a minuscule rate of one walk per nine innings. When that control is combined with his outstanding dominance rate of 8.3 strikeouts per nine, Hamill has an elite command rate of 8.3 strikeouts per walk. He's throwing first pitch strikes at a career best rate of 66%, and a comparison of Hamill's earned run average and expected earned run average tells us that he's for real. There's only one one hundredth of a point difference between them at 298 and 299, respectively. Eight of Hamill's nine starts have been PQS dominant, and he has no PQS disasters. If you have Hamill going for you this Saturday, you can relax with a nap in your hammock. For our final recommendation this weekend, let's switch to Sunday and give some attention to the American League matchup of a Cleveland Indian going into pitcher-friendly Safeco Field to face Jay Happ of the Mariners, who has a matchup rating of 120. BaseballHQ.com analyst Stephen Nickram tweeted Thursday night that only four starting pitchers in the majors have strikeout per nine rates of 10 or more and ground ball rates of 50% of more, and one of them is Danny Salazar. Salazar has a matchup rating of 205 and began the season with five straight PQS 5s. Then he had a PQS 0 and a PQS 3 against Texas, with another PQS 5 sandwiched in between them. Salazar's earned run average of 365 is nothing to sneeze at, yet it's more than a run above his expected earned run average of 261. His whip is 114. He's striking out 12 batters per nine innings while walking only 2.2, and his base performance value is a sterling 182. Start Salazar on Sunday if you can. Now let's turn to a couple of weekend warnings. Two matchup ratings are minus two or below this weekend, with one each day. In the American League on Saturday, watch out for Phil Klein of the Texas Rangers, who makes just the third start of his career against the Boston Red Sox in Arlington, where field dimension adjustments have made the newly renamed Globe Life Park less favorable for hitters. The Red Sox send out Wade Miley with a matchup rating of 026. Klein was a 30th round draft choice in 2011, and the 6 foot 7, 260 pounder easily caught the club's attention in 202 minor league innings pitched as a reliever. Despite his control rate being the same as Tyson Ross's so far this season at 4.6 walks per nine innings, Klein has been a starter for 10 days in the majors, 
with an 81-pitch PQS-5 in which he allowed one earned run for his debut, followed by a 66-pitch PQS-0 in which he allowed six earned runs. As BaseballHQ.com analyst Phil Hertz suggested in his Playing Time Today piece May 19, quote, the safe play is to watch Klein from a distance for now, unquote. In the National League on Sunday, Jeff Locke lugs a matchup rating of minus 2-0 into Petco Park against San Diego's Odrisamir Despagne, and his matchup rating of 161. I would say that Locke is a lock to lose, but that's just too bad of a pun. The fact that Locke is posting three-year highs with his ERA of 470 and whip of 145 is one warning sign. And he has PQS scores of three or below in six of his nine starts, including two PQS disaster zeros on the road. His one PQS five was April 18 at home against Milwaukee, which is tied for 29th in runs per game. It would be wise to stay away from Locke this Sunday. So enjoy your baseball this weekend by starting Tyson Ross, Jason Hamill, and Danny Salazar while avoiding Phil Klein and Jeff Locke. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Greg Fishwick of BaseballHQ.com. Greg Fishwick is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and here at Baseball HQ Radio. Now it's time for Master Notes, a weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball. And now with a look at Lance Lynn and the nature of conflicting analysis, here's BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. One of the great things about Baseball HQ is the tight feedback loop we have with our readers. Our subscriber forums are, in my view, the best resource of their kind in the fantasy baseball universe. Between those forums and the more recent edition of the comments area on our articles, we have a couple of channels for open dialogue between our subscriber base and our staff. That's a very good thing. Through those channels, I've learned a lot about what our subscribers like and don't like about our coverage. One of my earliest lessons was that readers hate conflicting analysis. If one analyst writes something positive about a player one week and another writes something negative the next week, you can bet that we're going to get called on it. There's nothing wrong with that, of course. One benefit of that tight subscriber staff feedback loop is that it keeps us on our toes. We had another instance of this phenomenon this week, and I thought it made for an interesting case study. The subject is Lance Lynn. This week, our ace buyer's guide analyst, Stephen Nickrand, wrote the following about Lynn. Quote, Lance Lynn has enjoyed a huge skill surge so far in 2015. 10.2 strikeouts per nine, 2.8 walks, 40% ground balls, 126 BPV. His current 11% swing strike rate is a career-best mark. His ERA and whip would be better if not for an elevated 36% hit rate. Stick with him. End quote. But less than two weeks earlier, Facts and Flukes analyst Greg Pyron had a somewhat different take on Lynn. Quote, Lynn has shown better skills than ever thus far in 2015, but first pitch strike rate and swing strike rate hint at forthcoming worsening command. If the 28-year-old could restore his first pitch strike rate and get a better handle on left-handed batters, he could exceed expectations. However, it's more likely that he is headed toward an ERA in the neighborhood of 350. End quote. When the inevitable reader comment pointed out this conflict, my first reaction was to deploy my pat answer to this question. After all, Baseball HQ is a collection of individual writers whose opinions will sometimes vary. It's occasionally possible to interpret the same data set in different ways. In these cases, we recommend that the reader take a deeper look at both arguments and see which one resonates with them. Luckily, before I got around to giving that answer, Stephen Nickran gave a better one. Quote, Keep in mind that small sample sizes at this point in the season can change the degree of our optimism or pessimism on a player. 
In the case of Wynn, his swinging strike rate has spiked to 12% in May, and his first pitch strike rate is now around league average this month after a rough April. His hit rate has come down a bit, too. Now his ERA for May is right at his 330x ERA. End quote. Sure enough, in between these two articles, Wynn had made two starts. On the 17th of this month, he threw a gem at home versus the Tigers, allowing one earned run in seven and a third innings, with seven strikeouts and an impressive 17 swinging strikes. In his next start, the last one before Stevens write-up, he got touched by the Royals for five earned runs in six innings, with only four strikeouts, after all the Royals don't strike out much at all, and a still solid nine swinging strikes in six innings. So, in between the two analyses, Wynn hung up 26 swinging strikes in 13 innings. In essence, both analyses were sound at the time they were written. But that begs the question, should Wynn's work in two mid-May outings be enough to influence our opinion of him? And of course, our sharp-eyed reader had the spot-on follow-up question. Quote, I understand all this, but how do you know if a certain change is the result of a small sample size or an actual step forward skill-wise? That's the information I would like to know. Is that information just a scouting thing, something that you have to visibly see? End quote. And Stephen nailed the response again. Quote, it's more art than science. Follow the skills, but put them into the bigger picture by also looking at the player's age, scouting reports, skill trends, etc. End quote. Stephen makes the key point that it's about looking at the big picture rather than any one metric. In cases like this, I always like to go back and review the commentary from the baseball forecaster as those quick commentaries formed our baseline expectation entering the season and often end up pointing back at the key metrics that can be used to evaluate a change in performance. Sure enough, that's the case with Lynn's write-up, which was as follows. ERA and dollar value portray a breakout, but XERA and BPV are actually flat. In fact, Dom, swinging strikes, say he wasn't quite as imposing, with his ERA gains primarily a function of strand rate. BPX even says his skills dip below average in today's pitching-rich game. Stability and durability have value, but don't pay for another sub-3 ERA. End quote. So, tying that off-season take back to what we've seen so far, Lynn's current 332x ERA and 126 BPV are a nice step forward from last year's 381x ERA and 80 BPV. But as noted in the forecaster write-up, he's still not displaying the skills of a sub-3 ERA. His control, dominance, and command are all improved so far this year, thanks to a hard correction in May that had followed a shaky April, especially in terms of first-pitch strikes and swinging strikes. With two months of opposing data, though, the only real conclusion to be drawn is that we need to see more evidence. Is that Great Knight versus Detroit propping up his swinging strike numbers, or was that a sign of him reaching a new level of effectiveness? You can take a deeper dive into his pitch-type data to see if he's showing a change in his velocity or pitch mix, etc. There's nothing striking in Lynn's case. He's throwing his hard stuff a bit more and his curveball a bit less this year, but nothing looks significantly different. So, the only real answer is that we need more evidence. Wynn had just over 600 big league innings to his credit entering this season. That's a great spot to see some real skill gains. But we're talking about a 50-inning sample size so far this year. There may be some real growth going on here, but it's also easy to overinterpret some random noise and call it growth. Will Wynn's performance align more with Nick Grant's take or Pyron's? Unsatisfying as it is, the only real answer to that question is, let's wait and see. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ray Murphy of BaseballHQ.com. Ray Murphy is the co-general manager and speculator columnist at BaseballHQ.com and a member of the Masternotes rotation here at Baseball HQ Radio. You can get Masternotes delivered to your email inbox every Friday in the weekly free Fantasy Friday e-newsletter. 
Just go to BaseballHQ.com and sign up. Of course, we also have Master Notes here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, May the 29th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 30 of the 2015 Fantasy Baseball season. Of course, I want to thank our regular guest for the Friday edition of the show, Todd Zola. I always enjoy our weekly talk with Todd, and I hope you like it as much as I do. And I want to thank our other contributors from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch news commentators were Harold Nichols and Jock Thompson. Our pitcher matchups analyst was Greg Fishwick. And our Master Notes commentator was BaseballHQ.com co-general manager and speculator columnist Ray Murphy. I'm Patrick Davitt. A couple of days from now, I'll have a Baseball HQ research and analysis article looking at the predictive power of PQS, those pure quality starts. What do they tell us about subsequent starts? And in the meantime, I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, and our Twitter feed is at BaseballHQ. You can also subscribe to my personal Twitter feed, at Patrick Davitt, and be the first to know when a new show is ready for download. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio, and take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Tuesday when our expert guest will be none other than the fantasy baseball legend Lenny Melnick. That's the next edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.